Good evening. Welcome to the Tennessee World Affairs Council's Election 2020 Special Report on the Middle East. Uh, tonight, we're going to examine the important issues that uh, voters should understand as they uh, prepare for uh, Election Day here in the United States. And uh, to do that, uh, we have assembled an excellent uh, panel of distinguished speakers this evening. And in the interest of time, I suggest that you check the Eventbrite listing or our webpage for their complete bios. Uh, but I'll give a, a brief introduction uh, of them now and we will jump uh, right into our program. Uh, let me introduce uh, Dr. Paul Pilar. He'll talk to us uh, tonight about uh, the Gulf, Iran and the Arab Gulf states and the recent normalization of relations between Israel and two of those uh, states. Uh, Paul Pilar is a non-resident fellow at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft and a non-resident fellow, senior fellow at the Center for Security Studies at Georgetown University. He is also an associate fellow at the Geneva Center for Security Policy. He retired in 2005 from a 28-year career in the U.S. intelligence community, <clears throat> excuse me, after which he was a visiting professor in the Security Studies program at Georgetown University. His senior government positions included National Intelligence Officer for the Near East and South Asia, Deputy Chief of the DCI Counterterrorist Center, and Executive Assistant to the Director of Central Intelligence. He is a Vietnam veteran and a retired officer in the U.S. Army Reserve. Ms. Monia Kubian will help us understand the situation in Iraq and Syria, an ever-changing portfolio, and she will discuss the end of uh, what uh, has been known as the post-9-11 posture in the region uh, to what uh, we can probably describe as a post-pandemic uh, approach to uh, the region. Ms. Jakubian is a senior advisor to the Vice President of Middle East and Africa at the United States Institute of Peace in Washington. She previously served as Deputy Administrative Assistant in the Middle East Bureau at USAID, where she had responsibility for Iraq, Syria, Jordan, and Lebanon. Before that, she was a senior advisor at the Stimson Center, focusing on the Arab up uprisings with an emphasis on Syria. Ms. Jakubian was a Fulbright scholar in Syria, where she studied Arabic at the University of Damascus from 1985 to 1986. Uh, to give us an overview of conditions and trends in the region that will present challenges and hopefully opportunities for U.S. involvement in the Middle East is Mr. Rami Hori. Uh, he is an internationally syndicated political columnist and book author, journalist in residence, and director of global engagement at the American University of Beirut and a non-resident senior fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School. Uh, Mr. Corey was the executive editor of the Beirut-based Daily Star newspaper, the editor-in-chief of the Jordan Times, and was awarded the Pax Christi International Peace Prize for 2006. And I recently uh, learned that, uh, that Rami was born in Queens, New York, in the hospital where my mother worked as a medical secretary, small world. Uh, Rami, your piece of tonight's program is to give us an overview of the region, which uh, could uh, be uh, quite a challenge for someone to do in several hours. Uh, but uh, knowing your byline for many years, if there's anybody who can explain to us in uh, about 15 minutes of remarks uh, what, we, uh, what we should take away of understanding what's happening in the region, you're, you're the one to do that. So uh, uh, Rami, the floor is yours. 
Thank you, Pat. I'm unmuted and visible, right? Yes, you are. Proceed, sir. Uh, give me a one minute signal when I reach 15 or 14 so we don't go over time. Well, I certainly will. Thanks for inviting me. I'm happy to be with my two distinguished uh, co-panelists and um, happy to share ideas with uh, the World Affairs Council in Tennessee and, uh, and your audience, wherever they may be in the region and the world. Um, the, the, the Middle East is uh, going through its most decisive transformation since the modern Middle East was created essentially after World War I. This is the system of countries, of independent countries, after the Ottoman Empire collapsed. And uh, essentially what happened in the last century is we had about 60 years of uh, pretty decent state building from 1920 to 1980. Uh, most of the countries in the region, and I'm, I'm talking specifically about the Arab countries, Israel, Turkey, and Iran um, fall into this analysis you'll see later, but I'm talking mostly of the Arab world, <clears throat> which was created in this modern form right after World War I. And for 60 years, there was broad, steady, uh, and relatively uh, equitable development across the region. And most families in most countries in almost every year would anticipate that their lives were going to get better, and they did. And their children were going to have more opportunities than, than they did, and they did. And that's why you didn't have mass popular uprisings trying to overthrow regimes. You had one or two only, but uh, very few. And um, uh, what happened then in around 1980, approximately 75 to 85, is, is that you had the trans transition from sustained national development and coherence into more erratic economic and social progress, greater inequality and fragmentation, and more political uh, tension, uh, which gradually from the early 80s until now, uh, so 40 years, 45 years or so, um, we had uh, a stabilization of the development decades and then a decline. And most of the problems of the region that people hear about <clears throat> in the media and you know in the western world i know the u.s well i live here uh, half the year <clears throat> in the western world you tend to only hear about the middle east when there are problems whether it's wars or terrorism or, or violence or uh, foreign american or russian or uh, other invasions um, and um, you don't hear about the normal day-to-day -day stuff um, but essentially, what's happening now, because of the steady deterioration in development and the well-being of individual families over the last almost half a century, there are a series of areas of life that are degrading, fraying at the edges, corroding from within, and slowly degrading and, and fracturing. And, and these areas are the following. The entire state system is fraying and degrading and changing. Many individual states, not all of them, but I would say two thirds of the Arab states are going through a process of some kind of tension and, uh, and decay and even some uh, change. The economies in most of these countries, in fact, all of these countries, even the oil wealthy ones, are going through the most stressful period that they've ever had and 
this is compounded by the COVID situation. Uh, the issues of identity. Uh, inside most of these countries, for the last century, there have been these tensions between your state identity, your religious identity, your ethnic identity, and maybe your ideological identity. So you have people who were tribal members, say, in Jordan or Syria, and then suddenly they woke up in uh, 1930 and they were citizens of the state of Syria and they had Syrian passports, and so their identity became Syrian. But they were also mostly Muslim, some Christians, and, and handfuls of Jews here and there in the Arab world, which had always been part of the urban scene in the big cities. Um, their religious identity was very strong and never went away, and you had tribal identities. Many people uh, in the, in the uh, areas like Syria, Iraq, Saudi Arabia, Jordan, others, tribal identity was very strong. So you've had these constant tensions between all of these identities, and that is now heightened to a great degree. You, we've had a degradation of citizenship. This relationship between the citizen and the state in m many Arab countries, again, I would say about two thirds of them, uh, is slowly uh, degrading and uh, experiencing great stresses and tensions, which I'll get into more. And finally, the issue of sovereignty. Many Arab countries, not all of them, but many of them are no longer genuinely sovereign. And what I mean by that, that they cannot control their own borders. They cannot control who comes in and out. And in many cases, they are not able to make decisions about their own well-being without getting the approval of some foreign power. The most extreme cases are when people in some Arab countries want to buy advanced military equipment they have from the US or somewhere else, they have to get the approval of Israel indirectly. The Israelis have to approve it. Or if they want to do something uh, somewhere else, they have to get the approval of Iran or Russia or some cases Turkey. Uh, so there's a, there's a loss of sovereignty in most of these uh, countries. And, uh, and all of these things together really uh, shape the tensions, drive the tensions uh, in the region. So what we're left with today, I can't get into all of these in detail, obviously, but what we're left with today is, the, uh, is a region that, with the exception of Tunisia, uh, is the only, the Arab region is the only collectively and chronically non-democratic region in the world. It's the only region where all of its citizens have never really experienced full citizenship rights. The second thing that is going on, which is much more clear now, and explains a lot of these problems, is that the military dimension of life in these countries, whether the internal occupation, whether the internal rule by military officers, which started in Iraq in the 1940s and Egypt in 52 and has continued nonstop ever since, nonstop militarism internally, as well as external military attacks, which have not stopped since Napoleon, since 1798. There have been continuous foreign military in interventions, attacks, engagements, uh, all around the Middle East. And it's much, much worse that foreign militarism is much worse today than it ever was in the past. So if you look at Libya, Syria, Yemen, 
um, parts of Iraq, uh, you see this this uh, free for all where anybody can come in and, and join the war, and, and and they do. The third issue, which is critical and is largely unappreciated or deliberately ignored because of political reasons abroad, is the role of the Arab-Israeli conflict in these wider tensions. And many people in the Western world, especially in the United States, will say, oh, the Arab, the Palestinian issue, nobody cares about the Palestinians. The Israelis are making peace with the UAE and Bahrain. Uh, the, the governments of the Arab world are worried about other things. Uh, I, I think that's sophomoric nonsense. Uh, uh, and as a Palestinian myself, and an American, and a Jordanian, I have many identities, um, I can tell you that the Palestinian issue resonates deeply across the region. But that's not the main point. The main point is that the Arab-Israeli conflict since the 1930s, when it started in a big way, uh, and after the creation of Israel in 1947 and 48, there has been constant warfare between Israelis and Arab parties, which has brought in other people in various alliances, and which was a major factor in allowing, back in the 30s and 40s, or 40s and 50s, a major factor in allowing incompetent military officers to take charge of Arab countries, going back to Nasser in Egypt, and then later on you had Saddam Hussein, Hafez al-Assad in Syria, Muammar Gaddafi in Libya, the Egyptian, um, various military rulers since, including still today. Um, and across the whole region, you had military men who took power and ruled their countries and drove them into the ground to the situation that we have today. So I, I can't get into the, there's not enough time, but the centrality of the Arab-Israeli conflict nonstop over the last century uh, is a critical issue that needs to be addressed. And it, it's one of the issues that also provides an opportunity. Uh, the other point I'd mentioned is the consequence of the drop in economic development over the years, over the last four decades or so, uh, has led to a situation today, and this is documented by UN uh, statistics and studies by people like Oxford centers and, and reputable people, where about three quarters of the Arab people, more or less, are poor and vulnerable. It's an extraordinary situation. The Arab world is a region of paupers. Uh, the Iranians are suffering similar stresses and, and drops in uh, living conditions. Um, the Israelis are doing fine. The Turks are doing okay. But in the Arab countries, we are suffering through a situation where in the last 20 years or so, the Arab region has gradually become a region of poor people and vulnerable and marginalized economically, simply because the economies could not grow as fast as the populations and because of corruption uh, and political economic nepotism and networks of favoritism um, <clears throat> and incompetent rule. The people who were in charge of running these countries who had no idea how to run countries and the result is what you see today. Therefore, we have the tremendous polarization inside the Arab countries where majorities of people are poor, small minorities are wealthy, maybe five, seven percent are wealthy. And then this middle class, middle class used to be around 45 percent in most Arab countries. It's now down to around 20 percent. <clears throat> and it's continuing to go down, not just because of COVID, but because of these trends 
where the continued population of the Arab world, which is now 440 million almost, 440 million people, <clears throat> uh, uh, it was 60 million in 1930 when the development century started. Now it's 440. Um, the, the economies could not keep up with uh, the way that governments were spending money to provide schools and jobs and medical care. And finally, most Arab governments, except the very wealthy ones, focused on small parts of their population and let the majorities of people drift into poverty and marginalization. And of course, that created huge uh, anger, uh, humiliation, fear, resentment among a majority of these populations. If you look at Egypt, Syria, Iraq, Jordan, Yemen, Libya, uh, Algeria, Morocco, go across the region, except for the small wealthy oil countries <clears throat> where you didn't have this problem. Three quarters of the Arab people are now poor and vulnerable and have no political rights. So you can be poor, in many countries you can be poor, but you have political rights. You have a way for redress of grievance. And uh, this is not the situation in the Arab world. Therefore, for the last 10 years, from 200, 2010 to 2020, we've had nonstop political uprisings all across the region. It started, of course, in Tunisia and Egypt in 2010, 2011, the so-called Arab Spring, we, we call them the Arab uprisings, and they haven't stopped since. They, they're not covered in the media abroad, but it's been nonstop uh, political protests across the region. There are four active major national uprisings going on right now in Algeria, in Lebanon, in Sudan, and in Iraq, and then smaller ones in other Arab countries. The point of this is that majorities of populations who are desperately uh, seeking how to just live a normal life, they're not seeking wealth or revenge or power, they just want to be able to go back to live a normal life and have their kids go to school and have medical care and get a job, which with the majority of people can't do now. Um, and governments are not paying attention to these issues in any serious way. And therefore, their people are out in the streets protesting. And they're not just protesting, calling for a change in this law or a change in that minister's position. They're calling for a total removal of the entire political elite that governs these Arab countries. Uh, so the situation is, uh, one in which we really have a mass regional popular uprising um, by helpless, powerless civilians who are desperately trying to create better government systems. And most of their governments are responding with military uh, security measures, which is what autocratic Arab governments have done uh, traditionally. So as this is going on in the Arab region, you have the greater involvement in the region militarily and politically and economically of Iran and Turkey. Israel has always tried to do things in the region but hasn't been able to penetrate as much, but it still is involved militarily and particularly in the fight against Iran uh, and its allies. So th that's a kind of quick overview of the very, very difficult regional context of the Arab world in which the Arab region itself is is corroding and fragmenting and some have countries have broken up if you look at the Kurds who in northern Iraq southern Sudan other parts of the region have tried to break away and and we had the Islamic State the so-called Islamic State they created their own country of course which wasn't a real country but you this is a sign of discontent so severe 
that people would want to break away from the Arab state system. And this is uh, exacerbated by the continuing militarism, which is directly uh, uh, aided by the United States, the United Kingdom, Russia, France, Iran, Turkey, uh, you know, the, any of the major powers in the world or the region, and the Emiratis and the Saudis are sending military forces around the region. Um, the Qataris and uh, the Egyptians, the Jordanians have small roles here and there, but it's a free-for-all and it's just creating worse and worse conditions. And therefore, in this context, there's not very much that we can expect that's going to change quickly because people are desperately seeking a kind of normalcy in their lives within their own country. The majority would like to immigrate if they could, but they, they can't. So they just have to figure out how do you establish better systems. They're trying to do it now through popular uprisings. Tunisia broke through. Sudan has a situation now where the military regime negotiated with the protesters after a year of protests and, and six, 700 protesters were killed by the military. The protests wouldn't stop peaceful civilian protests. And finally, the military said, okay, let's negotiate. So they're in the middle of a three-year transition, which is a very important, unprecedented um, situation in the Arab world, where the military was forced to negotiate a transition into a more democratic system. We'll see if it works. They finished one year, there's two more years to go. So last point, what, what, does, what does this mean? What are the issues that uh, people need to look at? What should a new American president or the same one who's reelected? What should I heard that a minute ago. Yes. What should other foreign powers do? I think the most important thing they can do is resolve the Arab-Israeli conflict in a way that is fair to the Israelis and the Palestinians and the other Arab countries. And that's eminently doable. We have the Arab peace plan and many other uh, ways to do it. Uh, so solving the Arab-Israeli conflict would take away a lot of tensions in the region and certainly take away one of the issues that causes many Arab citizens to uh, be angry with their own leaders. The second thing that foreign countries should do is understand the meaning of the mass uprisings across the region, how people are so angry and discontented, but striving peacefully for a change in how their countries are run. And the United States should connect with the people who are demonstrating peacefully in the streets. What they're asking for is exactly what's in the American Constitution. Uh, and then the third thing is the um, the United States, the Russians, the Europeans, everybody else, ideally in an ideal world, should engage diplomatically rather than just use military means. Military intervention in the region has destroyed much of the Arab world and created this mass poverty. So diplomacy over militarism is clearly uh, one of the priorities. So those three issues, listen to the Arab protesters, look at the Arab-Israeli conflict to be resolved, and engage the region, Iran or whoever it may be, more diplomatically rather than uh, with th with sanctions and, and threats and, and, and military attacks. Those are the areas that people should explore in the next American administration. Thank you. That's terrific. Thank you, Rami, for leading off with uh, that overview. Uh, we're going, let me just tell the audience that we're going to uh, ask questions of each uh, panelist at the conclusion of their remarks and uh, and then we'll have a, a uh, convention uh, at the end where all three will answer some more questions so feel free to drop your questions into the Q&A tab as as we go along uh, Rami um, 
in the context of uh, an overview of the region, I, I was reading through uh, some of your recent uh, columns, and one that struck me was, uh, and, and you, you speak eloquently about uh, the issues that that, uh, that plagued the, the region, but you were talking about um, a UN report uh, last month that uh, outlined the, uh, as you quoted, the decades-long challenges that, that plagued the 436 million people in the region, and citing deficiencies, numerous troubling and getting worse every day, areas like poverty, inequality, vulnerability, unemployment, low social protection, violence and conflict, declining health, education services, human rights deficiencies, refugees and displacement, and insufficient responsive institutions, which you, you called the UNEs for poor governance. Um, you, you concluded by talking about citizens playing a role, but in, in the environment where there's failed governments, um, autocratic regimes, you know, we had the UN the DP reports back in the, the early you know, 2003, 2004, which outlined all these problems. Uh, how how can a society, uh, how can people dig out from uh, those conditions? Well, there's been many societies around the world that made transitions from bad, badly governed, inequitable societies to more equitable ones, including the United States after the Civil War, um, South Africa, um, warfare in Northern Ireland, much of the Eastern European countries and many uh, Indonesia um, and many others around the world, to various degrees, you've had transitions um, that have been made by autocratic governments or whatever uh, they may be into something better. Um, it's human nature. It can be done. Many people have, do, have done it. There's nothing uh, difficult about it if there's a pol political will uh, to do it. Um, the key to making that change remains one of the great mysteries, uh, and that's why God gave us political scientists and historians to try to figure it out for us. But what triggers uh, the sense among people who hold power, like F.W. de Klerk in South Africa, um, uh, Mikhail Gorbachev in, uh, in the former Soviet Union, what and the rulers of Northern Ireland, what triggered this idea in their mind that their systems cannot be sustained and they had to change to something better. Um, I, I just basically um, keep urging people, as I did in that article that you mentioned, um, that you, you, the only thing that people need to do to understand the Middle East better, the Arab countries especially, but this applies to all countries, is listen to their people. So today, Unlike when I started my journalism in the late 60s and early 70s, today we have many ways to directly hear and read what Arab people are saying on social media and other ways. Um, public opinion polls, there's just tons of information. Um, and just look at what the protesters are asking for. So if people listen to the citizens and understand what they're calling for and then try to engage them politically and diplomatically, for a peaceful transition, it shouldn't be very difficult at all. Uh, it sounds easy, and in fact, it is easy if the people at top who have power uh, are willing to make some kind of transition. This is the great barrier in the Arab countries with their um, current uprisings, the four I mentioned. Um, only the Sudanese military agreed to engage with the protesters for a tr transition, which we're going through now. 
Lebanon, Algeria, Iraq, no sign of that yet. Uh, yeah. We'll see uh, if it happens. But when people hold power, uh, like the Egyptian military, for instance, is a good example. They've been there since 52. They don't want to uh, have any other system but the military ruling Egypt. And Egypt is is uh, falling apart. It's a, it's a terrible, terrible uh, situation with uh, poverty and inequality and lack of rights. So how do people who've held power for decades and decades give it up? And that's the great dilemma that people have not figured out how to do. Right. Uh, let me ask one more question, then, then we're going to move, uh, move on to our next uh, speaker. January 21st, uh, new president, perhaps, maybe a second uh, term for the, the incumbent. Uh, you talk about uh, the, the, loss, the impediment of uh, sovereignties lost in, uh, as, as a predicament for some Arab states. And, uh, and you've, in your writing, talked about the military adventures being destructive to uh, any coherent uh, ability for the, the Arab countries uh, to do the kinds of things that you, you say they, and they obviously need to do. Um, so uh, a memorandum to the, uh, the, new, the new president as a caretaker for the, uh, the Arab states, uh, what, uh, what major point would you want to make with the next administration? The United States has the greatest combination of anybody in the world of soft power, technical uh, expertise, economic opportunity, and just day-to-day -day fun in society to share with the Arab people more than any other country in the world, more than China, more than Russia, more than France. Nobody in the world has the American potential of soft power, technical knowledge, education system, economic uh, opportunity, and, and the joys of going to eat uh, hot dogs at a baseball game or going to Coney Island or, you know, just everyday life, uh, public libraries, the good things that every American citizen can usually enjoy. The United States should understand that that is the greatest power in the world that it can use to engage with uh, people inside the Middle East. And this is for the entire Middle East. Arab countries, Israel, Iran, and Turkey. Uh, there are huge demonstrations in Tel Aviv every, um, every um, weekend against the government. Uh, many Turks are upset and, and huge uh, discontent in Iran as well as in the Arab countries. That's what I would tell the next American administration. Understand your ability to engage with Arab people and others in the Middle East on the basis of your national assets and your national assets are not your cruise missiles and your drones. Your cruise missiles and your drones have continued what Napoleon started in 1798, which has brought this region to a catastrophic situation, culminating in the Iraq war, which was a disaster, and it's still going on. So that's what I would say. Look at your uh, strengths that are genuinely what the people in the region are asking for. And the, the ability for those to converge is astounding if somebody would just be brave enough to understand that and take the first steps. Well, thank you. Thank you, Rami. You've given us a lot to uh, contemplate tonight and as we look to the future to understand uh, developments uh, in the Middle East. Uh, next, we're going to, uh, to hear from uh, Ms. Mona Yakubian, who uh, comes to us uh, representing the U.S. Institute of Peace. 
Uh, Mona, I don't know what hospital you were born in, so I, I won't make any comparisons there, but we're, we're very happy to, to see you here with us. And you're going to speak uh, to us about uh, Iraq and Syria and about the transition or transformation from a post 9-11 uh, posture to uh, what uh, what you're phrasing as a, uh, a post-pandemic, inshallah, um, regime or, or portfolio or uh, approach to uh, the region. So, uh, Mona, thank you so much for being with us, and the floor is yours. Thank you so much, Pat, and good evening, and thanks to the Tennessee World Affairs Council for having me. It's a pleasure to be with you all this evening, even virtually. Uh, great to be with my esteemed uh, colleagues and, and co-panelists. What I'd like to do very quickly is just say one word about the U.S. Institute of Peace because um, the audience may not be familiar with us. We were created by Congress in 1984. We're an independent, nonpartisan institute dedicated to the, to the proposition that a world without violent conflict is not only possible and practical, but essential uh, for US and global security. And uh, I would urge members of the audience, if you want to learn more about USIP, to visit our website at usip.org. Um, I'd like to, before I dive into the specifics on, on Syria and Iraq, I want to make one broad point that sort of pivots off of uh, what Rami has been talking about. And it's essentially that the Levant, this region that stretches from Lebanon through Syria and Iraq, is in a moment that many are calling a perfect storm. It is contending with conflict, with mass displacement, with uh, governance crises, um, economic and social meltdown. Um, it's really in the throes of what can only be described as an existential crisis. Uh, it's, it, it's at a moment that honestly, it, I don't think it could bear any more pressure. And what's important is fears that this may, in fact, this sort of this existential moment may yield to a broader regional collapse um, has implications not only for the region's security, but for global security to include US national security. And uh, many of us who work on the Middle East often say that we, we know that uh, Vegas rules don't apply when it comes to the Middle East that many of the region's issues, whether it's radicalization, terrorism, refugee flows, that these things really reverberate well beyond the Middle East. And that's why it's important as Americans that we understand what's happening there and we, that we, we remain sort of committed to, to um, our national security interests that lie there. Um, so let me first talk a bit about Syria. Syria is about to enter its second decade of conflict. Um, this is a, a, a very complex uh, now regional war that started as peaceful protests, then morphed into a civil war, and now it is sort of a complex proxy war featuring both regional actors and global actors. Um, uh, there are no fewer than five foreign militaries engaged in conflict in Syria. And arguably, it is one of the most consequential arenas for great power competition, as evidenced by growing tensions, even direct hostility between US and Russian forces on the ground. Um, Syria is also a, a conflict of enormous humanitarian consequence. 
it has prompted the greatest humanitarian crisis since the end of World War II. More than half of Syria's pre-war population has been displaced, uh, more than six million internally inside Syria, and more than five million outside Syria as refugees. It's a country that was once a solidly middle-income country. Now more than 80% of Syria's population lives below the poverty line. And in this moment, as it approaches the 10-year the anniversary of its war, it's also contending with a very significant surge in COVID-19 and the prospects of economic collapse. With all of this, Bashar al-Assad, uh, the, the ruler of Syria, still maintains a, a tight grip on power. In fact, he has managed to claw back some 60% of the country's territory. But the Syrian conflict is far from over. This is a country that is very much fragmented, uh, violent, and there's really little prospect of, uh, of a political settlement um, anytime, anytime soon. In addition, I want to say just a word about ISIS, because of course ISIS occupied uh, a third of Syria and a third of Iraq. And while ISIS has been territorially defeated, that was uh, in March of last year, um, according to the UN, there are some 10,000 ISIS fighters still roaming uh, between Syria and Iraq. And it, ISIS is still an issue. Um, and in fact, there's been an uptick in ISIS attacks since the onset of the pandemic. So there, there's that issue as well. So let's talk for a moment about U.S. policy in Syria. And I think, this, I think that's the jump off point to understand what a future uh, next administration, whether it's a second Trump administration or a new Biden administration, what will they be contending with? Let's take current administration policy as the, as the baseline. And it's really uh, predicated on three key goals or policy objectives. Uh, the first is the enduring defeat of ISIS. The second is to counter Iranian influence on the ground in Syria. And the third is to uh, promote a political settlement to the conflict through UN Security Council Resolution 2254 and something that's called the Geneva Process. So how has that been done? Currently, the Trump administration is, is relying on, I'd say, sort of three baskets of tools, if you will. The first, militarily, is a small footprint, we would call it, uh, presence of U.S. Special Operations Forces on the ground. They are based in northeast Syria. There are about a thousand, and they work in close partnership with their local Syrian partners, the Syrian Democratic Forces. Their primary mission is the, to counter uh, ISIS. And they, they went to basically eject ISIS from the territory, and that's, that's, the, that's sort of how they are and why they're authorized to be there by, by Congress. Second is sanctions. And uh, sanctions have been a longstanding tool that have been used against Syria for decades. The, the Trump administration has really doubled down on the use of sanctions uh, in Syria. Uh, they passed recently at the end of last year something called the Caesar sanctions which are designed uh, to prevent uh, the further commission of atrocities by the Assad regime. They're designed to disincentivize any sort of uh, foreign investment in Syria's reconstruction and to uh, dissuade countries from normalizing diplomatically. 
Um, the, they're fairly wide ranging, um, although they're again added to our already very, fairly intricate pre-existing set of sanctions. And finally, there's the use of diplomacy. And this has been primarily through uh, this Geneva process that I, that I referenced. So what challenges would a new administration face come January of 2021? I think we can really uh, distill it into sort of four key challenges that any administration is gonna have to contend with in Syria. The first is the status of the counter ISIS mission. These 1000 special operations forces on the ground, their disposition and our policy more broadly on countering ISIS. Should we retain those forces? Should they be withdrawn? What should their mission be? What's working, what's not? Um, or should they be, uh, should they be expanded? Um, second is Assad's behavior, because as I noted, Assad's not going anywhere, and yet he, he has been a, a fairly egregious violator of human rights, uh, transgressed pretty much all international norms governing the law of armed conflict and, and how civilians are treated. The question really is, so what to do? Uh, I mean, he's not going anywhere. Are sanctions effective? Are they actually uh, getting the sorts of behavior changes that they purport to want to, to get? Um, or are they actually causing more harm to ordinary uh, Syrians? And if it's not sanctions, then what? Then how, how, to, how to isolate uh, Assad? Uh, third is this continued humanitarian crisis, which as I noted is bad and getting worse. And here the challenges are there's, there's donor fatigue, given now nearly 10 years of conflict, and also of course many competing interests and competing needs in this sort of post-pandemic landscape uh, that we will soon be confronting. And finally, what to do about the roles of Russia Iran and Turkey, all three of whom are fairly firmly entrenched in Syria. They've carved out territory, they've carved out influence, uh, often very negative influence. What to do? What can the U.S. do? Um, we can perhaps talk about this more uh, in the Q&A, but I would sort of underscore um, a few things. One is when we talk about Syria, there are really no good answers. This is an extraordinarily difficult foreign policy challenge where it's often been about finding the least worst option. And I think in many ways, uh, Syria is really a cautionary tale about 21st century conflicts and how we contend with them. Uh, we've seen the United Nations rendered essentially ineffective. The UN, UN Security Council has had very little ability to influence developments on the ground. Its humanitarian architecture has been largely overwhelmed by the Syrian crisis. And as we said, we have this sort of regular commission or regular transgression of international norms in this war. The fairly regular use of chemical weapons, uh, barrel bombs targeting civilians, the targeting of medical facilities. So all of these things are going on, very, very difficult to figure out um, how to respond. I think largely what I think we need to be doing is, is figuring out how we can reestablish some of our leverage with the express purpose of moving Syria toward a political settlement that would bring some sort of stability uh, on the ground. And I'm happy to talk about that, uh, about that more and, and get into more details. Let me now uh, turn to Iraq. 
And we're talking about Iraq tonight um, at a moment that is potentially could be a, a, an inflection point in U.S. involvement in Iraq. Uh, I don't know how closely people are following the news, but Secretary of State Pompeo just recently uh, threatened to close down our embassy, one of the largest in the world, um, if the Iraqi government is not able to better protect Americans, American diplomats and others from Iranian-backed uh, militias and their fairly regular rocket attacks that have been hitting the green zone, that area in Baghdad where the U.S. Embassy is located. It's been hitting them with regularity. Uh, and so Secretary Pompeo has said, you know, to the Iraqis, if you can't protect us, we're going to leave. Um, and we're seeing that there are other Western uh, embassies who have now also sort of joined into this call, you know, looking for better, better protection uh, in, a, in a situation that is, is uh, increasingly dangerous. What's behind this warning? Um, I think it comes, uh, there's, I think, two key points I'd want to make about it. It comes in the context, certainly, of the election season we find ourselves in, the approaching election, and I think concerns on the part of the Trump administration that they don't want to find themselves in a Benghazi scenario. And by that, I mean a scenario not unlike the very tragic uh, situation that happened at our embassy in Benghazi in 2012, when the U.S. Embassy was uh, rushed, uh, we lost, our, our ambassador was killed, uh, horrible incident. And I think there's real concern that they don't want to be faced with a similar kind of scenario with respect to our embassy in Baghdad. That's one. Second, I think, is the backdrop of, of continuing tensions with Iran and a doubling down by the Trump administration on, of it, on its maximum pressure campaign against Iran. And I think this has been played out uh, quite a bit in Iraq. I'm not going to talk about it um, much more because I think this is something that Paul will dive into. Um, but that's certainly at play as we watch and see what happens. How does the U.S. does the U.S. in fact decide to pull out of Iraq, and, and what does that mean? It's also happening in the context of, a, of an announced troop drawdown. Uh, we have had some 5,000 U.S. forces, or 5,200 actually, forces on the ground in Iraq as part of this counter-ISIS mission. Uh, there's now uh, a, a, decide, a decision to draw down to 3,000. And that's part of sort of the winding down of the military part of the counter-ISIS campaign. So what challenges will a new president uh, or a second Trump administration face in Iraq. I think a lot is going to depend on what happens in the next few weeks uh, and whether or not we make good if we feel the need to pull back out of Baghdad, out of Iraq diplomatically. I think that's going to present uh, any administration with some significant challenges, particularly if there are other countries that follow suit. Um, and so how to operate on the ground there or how to, how to project U.S. influence if we're no longer there on the ground. More broadly, I think the questions that we'll have to contend with have to do with, uh, again, this question of ISIS and our posture and what we're doing to counter ISIS and what our role is in the counter ISIS mission. Secondly, uh, as Rami has alluded, the, the Iraqi government is in the throes of very significant crisis of governance, it has a major economic crisis with respect to the oil price uh, slump, which is in part due to COVID. So it's battling uh, on several fronts. What role can and should we play 
to help the Iraqi government as it contends with these many domestic challenges. That's going to be a, another, another set of issues that we'll have to deal with. And finally, how to deal with and mediate these tensions with Iran, which, as I said, are often played out uh, in the Iraqi uh, arena. Um, I'm going to conclude with a, a few thoughts on sort of where does all of this go and what should we be doing. One is, one, one thought is, as I've described this very chaotic landscape across uh, Syria and Iraq, I think to me it's quite clear that the region more broadly is in dire need of a regional security architecture, something that has been lacking for decades. Uh, and I think the moment really has come as tensions rise and there's really no mechanism for de-escalating tensions. There are no off-ramps that exist. I think this would be an important place for the U.S. to prioritize its leadership, its diplomacy, to, to help move forward. And this would be in the context, I'm sure Paul will be talking about this, this will be in the context of, of Iran and what to do with Iran and Iran's role in the region. Um, finally, I want to conclude on the point that Pat has, has uh, teed up for me, and that is, um, what does all of this mean, uh, this, this region that's in, in such disarray? And what is, what is the US role? What should the US role be going forward? And I would say it's abundantly clear from everything that Rami has described, that I have described, that our approach to this very troubled part of the world over the past two decades, and for me, I sort of date this from 9-11, that our approach has essentially failed that we are seeing a region that is mired in greater instability, chaos. Um, and while there's a strong and understandable desire here in the United States for us to just leave this region, to pull out, uh, again, because of the fact that I think these security implications for the US are so significant, I don't think we can or should withdraw completely. What I do think we can do, though, and what I think we must do, is really institute what I would call a paradigm shift that redefines our engagement with this region away from the post 9-11 posture that focused very heavily on military interventions, on security and on counterterrorism, to what I would call a post pandemic posture that preferences the roles of diplomacy and development. And key components of this would be really prioritizing our budgets for diplomacy and development, which have been sort of ravaged, far more cost-effective way of engagement than uh, the, the huge expenditures that we've undertaken uh, in, on the defense side. Secondly, I think, as Rami was saying, I think we need to focus much more on the governance challenges, on the socioeconomic challenges that this region faces and really sort of remove that military counterterrorism lens through which we often view the region, and therefore I think we miss a lot. Um, finally, I think we need to really broaden whom we engage with. We do very much need to understand the people in the street. I don't think we understand well uh, the sort of this, the popular street, if you will, uh, across the region. And I also think we need to engage more non-traditional uh, uh, stakeholders, uh, diasporas, the Lebanese American community, the Syrian American community, um, uh, certainly civil society, entrepreneurs. Uh, this, these are complex problems. And I think the more minds and the more different stakeholders we bring to the table, the better the chances are that we'll find sustainable solutions. And I will stop there. Thank you very much. 
I want to thank you uh, so much for that. Uh, as with uh, your co-panelists, it probably wasn't fair to, to give you just 15 or 20 minutes to cover all of those complex issues, uh, but you've, you've done a great job describing uh, what's at stake in this, uh, this region um, in the Middle East where America has been involved so deeply for decades. Uh, let me just ask, and, and you, uh, you must have been reading my script. You had answered all the questions I had prepared, but uh, uh, I, I did fail to mention uh, the U.S. Institute of Peace and the Tennessee World Affairs Council has been blessed with having a, a terrific relationship with uh, USIP. Uh, we've had uh, visits here and uh, just a, a terrific relationship with the edu education outreach. Uh, through uh, Ann Louise Colgan and everybody on the staff there. So thank you for that. Let me ask you, uh, what is USIP's presence in the region and what sort of initiatives might be ongoing that we should know about? Uh, reports, studies. I, I know there are people on the ground around the world in in very difficult places, but tell us a little bit about USIP's role in, in this region. Thanks, that's a great question, thank you. So we are, um, we are, we have staff in 13 different uh, countries around the world, conflict zones. Uh, we have activities in more than 50 different countries. We have a really interesting and unique approach. We, we, we seek to sort of help mitigate uh, conflict, build peace, both from the ground level, from the community level, working with local communities, as well as from the national sort of national government and and regional level. Uh, we have very, very active and long-standing programs in Iraq, for example. We've been in Iraq continuously since 2003. I should say, I want to caveat everything I'm saying by noting that, of course, with the pandemic, that has, that has somewhat limited, certainly our, our, our foreign staff, our American and Western staff, is, and their ability to, to engage directly on the ground there. But we still actually have active dialogue programs growing. Uh, where we are working with local communities, particularly those that have been affected by ISIS. And the, the, the many who have, as I noted, been displaced by ISIS. There are still, I believe, over a million internally displaced people in Iraq, or IDPs, who, in the chaos of what happened with ISIS, uh, had to flee their homes. And so we've been engaged in dialogues at the local community level between, you know, there's lots of tensions, of course, that came out. Uh, Iraq has a very diverse uh, society. And through our local level dialogues, help to put together agreements that help facilitate the return of these IDPs back to their homes. We also have a very active uh, hub in Tunis, Tunisia, that oversees our programming in Tunisia, in Libya, we have a small program in Syria on the ground, very small. And we also, though, do quite a bit uh, in terms of policy analysis, convening in Washington. For those of the, in the audience who are interested, uh, we were mandated by Congress to, um, um, take, to sort of moderate the, the Syria study group. And uh, that study group issued a very interesting report at the end of September of last year. Uh, and so through our facilitation, we hosted the meetings, uh, brought a number together in that study group. And anyone that's interested can easily access the report and read it. I think they would find it quite interesting. So that's just a small smattering of, of the kinds of things that we do. Well, well, thank you for that. And, and I'm looking forward to, to reading more about uh, your ideas about a post-pandemic um, 
posture in in uh, the region, and I assume there'll be some publications in the USIP inventory. And and I would commend uh, to the attention of all of our viewers, uh, take a look at USIP.org. Uh, fantastic collection of materials there on on the great work they're doing. And I, I would suggest subscribing to the newsletter to keep up with what's happening there. Well, Mona, uh, thank you for your piece. Please hang on with us. And at the end, we uh, we hope to have time for a, a collaboration between uh, you and your, your fellow panelists. Uh, now we're going to um, ask uh, Dr. Paul Dr. Paul Pillar to uh, to join us. Um, Paul, I, I hope uh, you had a chance to go out and uh, have uh, have dinner while you were waiting on us. We apologize <laughs> apologize for the delay, but uh, but thank you again for for joining us. And uh, just uh, let me remind uh, everyone that uh, Dr. Pillar is a fellow at the Quincy Institute and a senior fellow at Georgetown University's Center for Security Studies. And he'll be talking to us about uh, the Gulf, Iran, and the GCC, uh, and the uh, discussion about the normalization of relations between Israel and, and a couple of those uh, Arab Gulf states. Uh, again, uh, Paul, a, a no easy task to do in several hours. And, and you promised me that you're, you're no longer a practicing professor. So uh, hopefully we, uh, We'll, we'll get the, uh, the Cliff Notes uh, version of what's going on there because it's it, it really covers a lot of territory. So thank you for being with us and uh, sir, the floor is yours. Okay, thank you very much, Patrick. And thanks to the council for the invitation <clears throat> to participate in this event. No, I didn't go out and have dinner. I was uh, very interested to hear the remarks from my, my two distinguished uh, co-panelists. Uh, we're gonna talk about the Persian Gulf region over the next few minutes and uh, Iran does need uh, the principal attention here because uh, plainly stated uh, the state of affairs with regard to uh, U.S. relationships and, and uh, what U.S. policy has or has not obtained is, is, is pretty bad. Uh, two and a half years ago in May uh, 2018, the Trump administration uh, pulled out of uh, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, JCPOA, otherwise known as the Iran nuclear deal, and cease to participate uh, and cease to observe any of the U.S. Uh, commitments with regard to sanctions relief under that agreement. Uh, the administration later escalated uh, its so-called maximum pressure campaign uh, to the point of what is, I can fairly describe as unlimited economic warfare against Iran. And, and this policy, which has continued ever since, uh, has elicited uh, three kinds of responses on the Iranian side, uh, all of them negative. One is uh, at, on the nuclear level. The Iranians did continue to observe uh, their nuclear restrictions under the JCPOA for another year, that is to say up until the spring of last year, but then their patience ran out uh, and they initiated a series of incremental um, ex exceeding uh, steps, uh, steps that exceed the uh, uranium enrichment limits uh, that were spelled out under the agreement. Uh, and as a result, uh, just to be more specific, uh, under the agreement, they were limited to a stockpile of no more than 202 kilograms of low enriched uranium. They now have a stockpile of about 10 times that, around 2,100 kilograms. Uh, it's still at the low enriched level, although they've up the percentage enrichment slightly from 3.67 to 4.5%. But to put this in terms that, that might be a little more understandable, uh, people often talked about breakout times uh, when the agreement was being negotiated, meaning 
from whatever capability the Iranians had, if they decided to race to try to develop a nuclear weapon, how long would that take? Well, before the JCPOA was concluded back in 2015, uh, the breakout time had, by most estimates, had got down to only a couple of months. Uh, after the agreement, with all the uh, dismantling uh, that the Iranians had to do with their program and giving up uh, their stockpiles, uh, the breakout time got up to easily a year. Now, by some estimates, it's maybe back down to around the four to six month range. This does not mean that the Iranians have decided to build a nuclear weapon. There's no indication they're doing any weapons work. Uh, or that they have reached any decision to do that. Rather, these incremental steps to uh, enrich more uranium um, are, are bargaining steps, uh, similar to what they took before the agreement was reached uh, as a way of putting you know, counter pressure uh, on the United States in particular uh, to come to terms. And that's exactly what they're, they're doing now. Um, so that's, that's one area. Um, the second area has to do with uh, Iranian conduct elsewhere in the region. Um, and it has become more aggressive uh, since the US reneged on the JCPOA. Uh, in particular, last year uh, featured some attacks uh, with, which had an Iranian hand on uh, oil resources, some sabotage of tankers on the other side of the Gulf, and then most spectacularly, an attack on some critical Saudi uh, oil facilities using a combination of uh, drones and cruise missiles. That was September of last year. Um, the Iranians had never done anything like that before. Uh, they were highly conscious of the fact that if they were to start going after other people's oil capabilities, then they were liable to have their own oil capabilities hit in return. But once the US administration, the Trump administration, set out to destroy the Iranian oil trade altogether anyway, uh, their motivations obviously changed. And in fact, you had some explicit statements from the Iranian leadership saying, if we can't export our oil, then our competitors are gonna have trouble exporting theirs as well. And finally, uh, the one other consequence uh, on the Iranian side worth mentioning is a hardening of uh, Iranian politics in Tehran. Uh, President Hassan Rouhani and Foreign Minister Javad Zarif, who are the ones who negotiated the Iranian uh, uh, nuclear agreement, uh, have been discredited by what's turned out, given what the U.S. administration has done. Uh, and the hardliners in Tehran have been able to say with uh, considerable plausibility, we told you so. Uh, look what happens when you negotiate with those perfidious Americans. Uh, you were fooled. And so the, the, the hardliners uh, definitely have more of an upper hand in, in Tehran these days. Um, the U.S. administration's most recent uh, moves have been a continuation of, of more of the same, just uh, uh, the maximum pressure course uh, uh, has continued. Uh, the very most recent uh, uh, attempt by the administration was to implement or to execute, uh, uh, to activate, I should say, uh, the so-called snapback mechanism. This was a clever bit of uh, uh, writing in the agreement, uh, which was designed to assure people that if the Iranians started cheating or violating the agreement, they would have the sanctions reimposed very quickly, automatically, without having to negotiate about it again. Uh, and the provision said that if any other party to the agreement uh, declare that the Iranians were in violation, then the sanctions would be automatically reimposed unless the UN Security Council 
uh, were to pass a resolution uh, keeping the sanctions suspended. And of course, the US as a permanent member could veto any such resolution. Well, the obvious problem with this is, uh, although the um, snapback provision uh, is limited to participants in the JCPOA, the US stopped participating uh, two and a half years ago. And so uh, the other members of the UN Security Council, all except the Dominican Republic, which the US leaned on uh, to take its side, uh, to put it quite bluntly, think the US uh, tactic was ludicrous. Uh, pulling out of an agreement and then trying to use a provision of the same agreement uh, to slap sanctions back on Iran. Besides which, it was the United States, not the Iranians, uh, who, who violated the agreement way back two and a half years ago. Uh, so just as there's no sign of the US uh, administration changing course, uh, there's not really much of a change in the Iranians, uh, uh, any prospect of change in the Iranian policy uh, right now either. Um, the status quo, however, is unsatisfactory to Iran because the United States uh, continues to uh, implement as many of its own unilateral sanctions as, as, as it can, as well as using secondary sanctions uh, to, dis to uh, discourage any other countries from doing any kind of business uh, with Iran. Uh, moreover, uh, the Iranians have not uh, closed the books on the assassination of one of their very senior leaders, uh, Qasem Soleimani, uh, killed in a US uh, drone strike at Baghdad uh, airport uh, several months ago. But for now, the Iranians seem to want to keep a lid on things, uh, not to see the conflict escalate to a point where uh, President Trump could uh, use a rally round the flag effect to improve his election chances. Uh, officially, the Iranians say they don't have a, uh, a preference with regard to the outcome of the US election. They clearly do, uh, but, I, but it's also pretty clear that they see their best chance of uh, having regime change in Washington come January 20th uh, is not to try to interfere in the US election, but rather to uh, uh, try to moderate their own behavior and not do anything um, uh, that would provide a convenient October surprise. Essential for making any kind of progress and getting out of this whole mess and this bad state of affairs is to return to full compliance with the JCPOA. Uh, the Iranians have made it very clear, and Foreign Minister Zarif uh, made it clear just last week in a uh, on-the-record session uh, that the Council on Foreign Relations had where he spoke, uh, that uh, for the Iranians, it's absolutely essential the United States come back in full compliance with the JCPOA before they are going to be willing to negotiate uh, on anything that goes beyond that, either in the nuclear area or other areas. And it's not surprising. Uh, no one wants to buy the same horse twice. And if the US were to say, well, you have to do these extra sorts of things beyond what you agreed to in the JCPOA before you get the sanctions taken off, uh, they would in effect be uh, getting asked to buy the same horse twice. Besides, it's a matter of basic trust and confidence in whether the US will live up to any future agreements that might be reached. As I mentioned, uh, the hardline message uh, has acquired a lot of plausibility in Tehran, and it's going to be a hard enough sell as it is for Rouhani or Zarif or anyone else uh, to try to persuade uh, other powers that be in Tehran 
to take another chance with another agreement anytime soon with the United States. Coming back into compliance, both the US and Iran, uh, then becomes a matter of uh, sequencing. Uh, Mr. Biden has indicated if he, if he becomes president next year, he will return to the United States to compliance with the agreement. Um, and since it was the United States that violated the agreement, it's appropriate that the US uh, make the first move here. But I think uh, what probably should happen is that any such US move on, on those uh, in that direction uh, will need to be coupled with a uh, fairly firm, uh, tight deadline requirement that Iran return to full compliance um, on its side. And, and that shouldn't be too hard. Those incremental steps that I mentioned and uh, enriching the extra uranium, uh, the figures I gave you earlier, the Iranians have repeatedly emphasized that these are eminently reversible steps, which indeed they are, and that they fully intend to reverse them if and when the United States does come back in full compliance itself. If we do have a return to compliance with the JCPOA, then, then other action through diplomacy to resolve other conflicts and address other issues of concern that involve both the US and Iran become possible. Uh, in the first instance, simply by reestablishing a channel of communications that we haven't had um, since things were broken off two and a half years ago. One possibility would be in the nuclear area, what's called a more for more agreement, where the Iranians would commit farther into the future for more restrictions beyond the ones they already committed to in the JCPOA, in return probably for greater certitude that uh, they would get the kind of economic benefits that they hoped to get when they signed the agreement. But even under the Obama administration, they didn't uh, fully enjoy for, for a number of reasons. And other topics of mutual concern uh, focused mainly on overall security in the Gulf region could be addressed as well. And getting to those other topics, um, this involves the Gulf Arabs. Uh, as Patrick mentioned, uh, you know, one of the most significant or newsworthy things that uh, happened recently was this agreement uh, normalizing diplomatic relations with Israel by the United Arab Emirates and Bahrain. Uh, misleadingly sometimes called a peace agreement. It didn't really advance peace either on the Israeli-Palestinian end, since the Palestinians had no part of this and it, it does nothing to advance the cause of Israeli-Palestinian peace, nor does it really uh, do anything on the Gulf end. Uh, neither Bahrain nor the UAE have uh, really participated in warfare against Israel. Uh, there have been no shots fired in anger uh, between them. And indeed, both of those Gulf Arab countries already had extensive uh, relations with Israel, cooperating on a number of fronts, even though they, until now, fell short of, of full diplomatic uh, relations. Um, instead, I mean, really, the, this move was con is best described as a, a deepening of a mostly anti-Iran alliance, which has a military component, especially given that uh, increased arms sales from the United States to the UAE seems to be a key part of it, uh, to include a sale of advanced F-35 aircraft. So it carries the further um, risk of, of arms races, not only vis-a-vis -vis Israel, but also vis-a-vis -vis Iran and other actors in the Gulf. Uh, Saudi Arabia, of course, is, is the big enchilada in this. Um, I don't see any prospect in the near future for Saudi Arabia to make the same move that 
the UAE and Bahrain just did, as long as King Salman uh, is still alive because he feels very strongly uh, about uh, the Palestinian-Israeli conflict and is adhering to the formula of the Arab League Peace Initiative. But on most other issues, uh, he has delegated things to his, his favorite son and the young crown prince, uh, Mohammed bin Salman, uh, usually known as MBS. Uh, and under MBS, Saudi Arabia has become, in many ways, the most disruptive force in the Persian Gulf region, uh, especially with regard to the war in Yemen, which I'll say a bit more in, in just a second, but also uh, with regard to other things, such as uh, a while back, they, they, they kidnapped the uh, prime minister of uh, Lebanon and uh, pressured him to resign, causing a governmental crisis in Lebanon. Um, they have aided a variety of uh, extremist groups uh, on the opposition side in Syria, some of which have Al-Qaeda-type connections, uh, that sort of thing. And meanwhile, internally, MBS is trying to consolidate his own power, moving the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia away from what had been more a system of family consensus within the royal family and going more and more toward one-person rule, uh, including a rather harsh sort, uh, even though MBS has uh, loosened some social restrictions uh, within the kingdom, uh, the human rights problems in Saudi Arabia and some other respects have gotten worse. And this gets to some particular concerns or that ought to be concerned uh, of the United States, uh, lest we forget uh, on the human rights side, uh, the thing that uh, concerned the US most was the brutal murder of Jamal Khashoggi the dissident journalist who was also a U.S. resident who wrote for the Washington Post and was butchered in the uh, Saudi consulate in Istanbul. Um, reportedly, the U.S. intelligence community has concluded that MBS himself, the crown prince, uh, had to have been personally involved in this, uh, even though the current U.S. administration is trying not to um, draw attention to this. So that's, that's a bit of major baggage in the U.S.-Saudi relationship that sits out there. And then there is the Yemeni war. Um, uh, Mona made the case that uh, Syria is currently the worst uh, you know, man-made humanitarian disaster. Some people would argue that the Yemen war uh, might have that title. Uh, the civilian casualties are you know, well up in the, uh, the five figures, and the great majority of them have resulted from the air war that has been sustained by the Saudis. There has been some progress toward de-escalation. There have been some prisoner exchanges, and the Saudis' allies, the UAE, withdrew from direct participation in the war, although they, con they continue to have a hand in it indirectly through various clients in southern Yemen. But the Saudi uh, air war continues at a pace of about a dozen combat sorties a day. Um, the U.S. has involved itself in this uh, by providing uh, logistical support, including some of the bombs that are being dropped uh, to the Saudis. And uh, this raises some issues, uh, including uh, legal issues. Uh, uh, the lawyers in the State Department reportedly raised, going way back to the Obama administration, uh, the question of whether the United States could be uh, liable to uh, charges of war crimes uh, because of its um, involvement behind the Saudi air war. 
Uh, and then there were more recent reports that uh, the Trump administration tried to cover up this, this whole issue and not have it be, become a matter of uh, public knowledge. Well, finally, um, I, I would uh, appeal to people and I would appeal to the next administration to look at issues in the Persian Gulf region from a region-wide basis, or at least sub-regional basis, if that's what we're talking about with the Persian Gulf area. Um, you know, what we've had with the current administration is it's always Iran, 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 but if you try to define the troubles of any one region uh, in terms of any one adversary, you're not getting a complete or accurate picture uh, at all. Uh, uh, my colleagues mentioned, uh, uh, you know, regional security arrangements. Uh, and I think even if that can't be done on a Middle East-wide basis, there is some real possibility to doing some good de-escalatory work uh, uh, in fashioning a, a security structure in the Persian Gulf region. And in fact, President Rouhani of Iran has, has offered some ideas uh, in, in, in this vein, uh, proposing a forum that would be modeled on the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, which would involve the Iranians and the Gulf Arabs and other players, uh, including some of the external ones, uh, and, and would be a place where many of the issues of common concern that risk uh, escalation into something worse uh, could be discussed and de-escalated. There are, in fact, a lot of common interests between the Iranians and the Gulfs, uh, Gulf Arabs on the other side of the water. Um, of course, the Saudis and the Gulf states are always happy to see the U.S. take their side in any uh, local or regional rivalries, but that does not mean that they are looking for anything like a war. The, the attack on the Saudi oil facilities last September was probably a wake-up call uh, to the Saudis, given the accuracy and effectiveness uh, that it the capability that it demonstrated, and it uh, reminded the Saudis of how much they could be hurt and how much their oil industry could be hurt if there was any kind of military conflict involving Iran and either the U.S. or Israel. Um, that's the kind of thing that everyone has a shared interest in avoiding. But so far, the, uh, the current administration has discouraged uh, contacts and discussions with Iran, and so that isn't happening. But uh, uh, that's one area for change. And I will stop there, Patrick. Well, thank you, uh, Dr. Piller. Uh, what a, a fascinating view of a region that uh, attracts probably the most attention of policymakers in Washington, the, the Persian Gulf. And, especially the maximum pressure campaign that we have uh, with, uh, with Iran. Um, as, as with uh, our previous uh, speakers, you, you've answered most of the questions I have, so I've, I've been busily uh, cobbling together some new ones here. Um, great power conflict, that seems to be the new thing uh, in Washington. Is that the conventional wisdom? Are we moving away from terrorism and the 9-11 um, aftermath, and we now talking great power conflict. And if that's the case, what should we know about China and Russia and their uh, interest in in the Gulf region? Well, that, that has become the uh, the new conventional wisdom, um, focusing just just on the region. Um, I would I would I would make a couple of points, mainly about Russia. Uh, we we could take a leaf out of Russia's book on how to deal with the Middle East in that 
the Putin government of Russia has very successfully kept all their lines of communication and all their diplomatic channels open. They talk with everyone. Um, they have business-like relations with the Israelis and with the Iranians and with the Arabs, um, uh, with the Syrians and right, basically everybody. Whereas, of course, the, the, the path that the U.S. has been following more lately is to divide the region into good guys and bad guys and try to cement uh, the alliances of what are considered the good guys, the, the uh, uh, development regarding Israel and Bahrain, the UAE was part of that, while refusing to have any dealings uh, whatsoever with those on the other side, the so-called Shia Crescent led with Iran. Now, I think that's a mistake, and I think the, the inroads that uh, uh, Putin's Russia, despite all its other weaknesses, uh, has been able to make as a demonstration of that. Um, the, the Chinese, uh, as usual, the, they have economic and energy-related concerns, um, uh, but they're tempered by uh, other uh, concerns about direct relationships with the United States. This translates in, in China's case to, you know, continuing to have a, a relationship that includes some oil purchases with Iran, but is not uh, going beyond the sort of point that uh, Beijing would be afraid that they would get hit even harder with secondary sanctions by, uh, by the current U.S. administration. Uh, but, but they like the... Uh, that the Russians uh, are willing to do business with and talk with everyone. And the Chinese, even, even more so than the Russians, have absolutely no care at all about what the internal political or economic system is of, of, a, of a counterparty state. They'll, they'll be happy to, to uh, do business with anyone, no matter how bad their human rights record is. Well, I was going to ask you the, uh, the same question uh, I asked Rami about uh, a memo to the president on January 21st. Well, you already answered that uh, to take a, a regional uh, perspective on things. Yeah. What, what would you tell uh, the average American that what they should know, what they should expect to see going on in, uh, in the region? Uh, I know in Saudi Arabia, it's, it's pretty clear uh, they are hoping for another Trump administration. Um, they don't see uh, things improving in Saudi-U.S. relations. Iran, uh, as, as you mentioned, probably is looking for a change in the, in the White House. So what, what should Americans uh, be thinking about as, as we navigate these waters? Well, the, the outcome of the U.S. election is one of the biggest variables. I mean, it's going to affect just about everything I just talked about in a, in a major, major way. So... <laughs> um, you know, the, 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 pro the prognosticators of regional stuff like myself have to uh, defer to the uh, domestic political prognosticators in, in terms of what we ought to expect. But, but I, I would say, just to, to expand on your question, Patrick, um, expect the unexpected in that, uh, you know, what's basically unpredictable is, you know, some incident spinning out of control uh, in a tense situation, and then it suddenly escalates. I, I talked about you know, the, the need for communication between the United States and Iran. Um, uh, some viewers may remember we had, back during the Obama administration, an incident in which a couple of our U.S. naval small craft strayed uh, inadvertently into Iranian territorial waters. I think they had a problem with their navigation system or something. It wasn't intentional. Um, and the Iranians, just as we would if an Iranian vessel strayed into our territorial waters, they seized the, uh, the vessels and, and uh, the crew members. Um, uh, fortunately, because of the channel of communications established as a byproduct of negotiating the nuclear agreement, uh, you know, Secretary of State Kerry and Foreign Minister Zarif could get on the phone 
and uh, they solved the problem. And then about within about 24 hours, we had our our uh, vessels and our sailors safely back. Uh, I shudder to think uh, what would happen in current circumstances without that kind of communication if we had a similar uh, naval incident uh, in which uh, our crew members uh, uh, wound up in the hands of the Iranians. Sure. Well, uh, as we invite back uh, Mona and Rami to, uh, to join us, let me just pass one quick question to you from Bob uh, Capanchi. Uh, from Peoria, uh, Paul, he asks, uh, according to the UN, the UAE is uh, uh, sending arms to Mr. Haftar, who opposes the recognized government in Libya. Um, can you talk briefly about UAE getting involved in issues so far away? Yeah, the, the UAE has uh, really been flexing its uh, muscles uh, well out of proportion to uh, you know, its, its, its native population. Uh, they have developed, even before and unless they get F-35s, they already have a very effective air force, and they have been active in, in the Libyan war between the uh, Haftar and the forces in eastern Libya and the UN-recognized regime in western Libya. Um, and they have been subject to some of the same sorts of uh, criticisms about uh, incurring civilian casualties uh, that the Saudis have and what they've been doing in Yemen, not nearly to the same scale. But this is an issue that has come up, by the way, and I think we'll probably hear more about it uh, maybe in Congress with regard to that possible F-35 sale uh, to, to the UAE because the objection has been raised uh, that they are doing uh, sort of nasty stuff in, in Libya and killing civilians. And should we be selling them such an advanced aircraft under those circumstances? Yeah, I think I've also seen reports that they're in uh, Suda Bay, Crete, um, the Greeks uh, are facing off against the Turks over oil exploration in the Eastern Med. And I saw a report the UAE had uh, aircraft in, uh, in Crete. Um, it, it's, a tribute, it's a tribute to the reach and capabilities of the UAE Air Force. I mean, you, sure. if, you, if, if you had a one-on-one -on -one, uh, contest, uh, air contest between the UAE and the Iranians, whose own air force mostly belongs in museums, it would be no contest. The UAE would uh, clobber the Iranians. Right. Well, welcome back, uh, Rami and Mona. Thanks uh, for everyone for uh, terrific presentations. Let me go through a couple of questions that we have uh, for uh, Rami and uh, and Mona, and uh, they uh, two of them come from uh, our friend Nazad Harami, who is the director of the Saladin uh, Center here in Nashville. And you may not know it, but Nashville has the largest population of Kurds in North America. And it was the site of one of the, uh, get your finger dipped in, in uh, purple ink when uh, the first election was held in Iraq after uh, the government was formed. Uh, so we have a very uh, large and uh, prosperous uh, Kurdish community here. And uh, Nazad asks, um, uh, Rami, he, he talks about the brutality of, against the Kurds at the hands of uh, the Arab government in, uh, in Baghdad during the Saddam regime. And he, his question is basically, can you, can you talk about the Arab system uh, with regard to Kurds? And, and let me uh, ask the question of Mona that, uh, that Nazad uh, asked. Uh, he's basically uh, wanting your view on the Kurdish issue um, when you talk about Iraq, it's, it's a big issue and what uh, the US government uh, position is. I know there was a, a referendum on Kurdish independence in the Kurdish regional uh, government area. 
So uh, Rami first, and then Mona, if you could just follow up. Yes, uh, thank you for the question, and uh, thank you both to uh, Paul and Mona for your comments. They were terrific. Um, I keep learning every time I engage in an exercise like this, which is uh, a testament to the quality of the speakers and to the many issues that we still have to deal with in the region. It's amazing. Um, the Kurdish situation absolutely is an example, an extreme example of uh, the brutality of many, not all, but many Arab regimes that were run by military officers. Um, <clears throat> and uh, there were uprisings several times in the Kurdish region against the central government in Iraq, in Baghdad, because it mistreated the Kurds so badly. And you had similar uprisings from uh, largely Shiite regions uh, in the south. And um, these, these were among the few large-scale popular uprisings that happened in the Arab world from the 20s to the, uh, to the end of the last century. Uh, there was one in Sudan that overthrew Numeri. Uh, and one or two other tiny ones, but these were the biggest ones um, that happened, and they were brutally repressed by the central government uh, in Iraq. The Kurds have more right to statehood than, uh, or the same right to statehood as anybody else in the region. They have the qualities of a nation, of language, of culture, of history, of identity, of territory, large numbers. Uh, they should be a state an independent state. And what a wonderful state it would be because as you know in Nashville, the Kurds are extraordinarily fine people, as are all the people in the Middle East, if they're given a chance to live normal lives. Um, but because of the imperial uh, intervention in our region and the handoff from the imperial powers to the Arab autocrats um, in the 30s and 40s and 50s, uh, the average citizens in the Arab world, whether they're Kurds or Shiites or Sunnis or Christians or, or whatever they may be in different uh, places, They've, the average citizens have never had a chance to really shape their own countries. Uh, but I absolutely, the Kurds were, were more badly treated than almost anybody, including chemical warfare and mass population movements and, and the most awful social engineering um, moves. Uh, so I, I fully agree with uh, Nauzad's question. And Mona, the U.S. government uh, posture towards the Kurdish regional government? Well, I think Rami has well laid out the tragic history of the Kurds. I think the U.S. relation with the KRG or the Kurdish regional government is quite good. And, and in many ways, I think that the situation of the Kurds in Iraq is, is far better, certainly, than it was with the institution of federalism and some degree of autonomy. I think relations have even improved a bit further under the current uh, uh, Prime Minister Academy uh, with respect to relations between Baghdad and and uh, and the Kurdish region. And again, I think the, the Kurds have been, I, I think what I'd like to highlight, if I could, for just a moment, is the relation between the U.S. and the Kurds in Syria. Because uh, when I noted the Syrian Democratic Forces, about 60,000 strong force on the ground, it is commanded and led by uh, the Kurds. And it's it has been a very important uh, 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 relationship that the United States has had on the ground with them. In fact, um, the Syrian Democratic Forces actually took far greater casualties in the battle against ISIS, losing some 10 or 11,000 fighters than we did. We lost uh, 
about six or seven or eight Americans, the, the, the Kurdish-led SDF lost 10,000. They have been an invaluable partner on the ground. It's a partnership that's been complicated by our relations with Turkey, our NATO ally. Uh, Turkey has been uh, deeply, uh, viscerally opposed to any sort of Kurdish uh, autonomy or semi-autonomy in Northeast Syria. And it makes for the kind of very complicated situation we find ourselves in. Um, I think the Kurds were somewhat disappointed, to say the least, uh, by uh, our decision to pull back from the border with Turkey in October of 2019, which is what allowed Turkey to make an incursion into a zone in Northeast Syria called the Operation Peace Spring Zone. So I think going forward, it's a complicated relationship. I think uh, it's something that will demand quite a bit of attention. And I think ultimately, the answer in Syria uh, for the Kurds is some degree of, of uh, semi-autonomy decentralization in an ultimate uh, political settlement. Um, but unfortunately, I think we're, we're quite a ways off from that. Well, well, thank you for that. Uh, we're, we're close on time here, but let me ask one more question uh, of Paul, and then I'll ask each of you uh, for closing comments. Uh, Paul, the, uh, the GCC is in a difficult way uh, for the first time since uh, its creation, uh, 1981, is that, is that uh, sound right? It was, it is uh, now seen uh, a, a fracture with uh, Qatar being uh, pushed aside in terms of relations and uh, trade and, and so forth by Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, UAE. Uh, we've seen two heads of state um, pass from the scene in, in recent uh, weeks and months. Um, give us a snapshot of, of what, what we should know about the Arab Gulf states and uh, what that means for American relations in the Gulf. Paul, you mute. You're on mute. Sorry, thank you. Everybody um, gets one of those. <laughs> uh, yeah, I didn't have time to get into all the inter-GCC uh, uh, machinations, but I, I think I, I would fold this under the uh, issue of U.S. relations with Saudi Arabia because it, it, yes, the you know the the UAE and Bahrain have been their partners in the the ostracism of Qatar. But it uh, really it is in Riyadh where the most important decisions would, would be made. Um, and I would be reasonably hopeful that, um, that MBS in Saudi Arabia, the Crown Prince, uh, can be persuaded that this thing just isn't working, this, this uh, thing of isolating Qatar and trying to bring them to heel. Because the, the gutteries have actually been fairly successful despite the boycott and the, the isolation. In keeping things going, they're 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 uh, they're I think they're still the leading uh, liquefied natural gas exporter in the world, um, and uh, uh, they they've gotten support from the Turks, um, and uh, so they're they're doing okay. Uh, and of course, the background of this is the U.S. has this major military relationship with um, a huge basing uh, arrangement there. Um, so the, I, I think the, um, what the Saudis, along with the Emiratis and Bahrainis, have tried to do is basically a failure. And I would be somewhat optimistic that uh, this, what has been a major distraction in, in uh, Gulf matters, uh, can, can soon be resolved. 
All right. Well, we'll have to have you back to, uh, there's, there's so many more. It, it's a complex uh, part of the world, uh, the Gulf and across uh, the region. Uh, Mona, uh, any last comments you'd like to share with us? Well, one, it's been a real pleasure. And two, I think stay tuned. The region, as I noted at the outset, I think is, is heading into a period of, of a lot of instability. There'll be great temptation on the part of the United States to pull out completely. I don't think that's the answer, but I think you've heard maybe a similar strain amongst all of us, which is it's a U.S. resort to diplomacy, to our soft power, uh, a pivot away from a focus on military interventions that really could help this very troubled region. So thank you, and it's, it's been a lovely evening. I appreciate being included. Thank you so much, and good luck with your new boss at USIP. Rami? I would just um, make the comment as I've been making for the last 50 years of interacting between Arab region and the United States is that the American people and the political class and the media should listen more to ordinary Arab citizens. You know, if somebody from overseas was, was looking at the U.S. and they only heard Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders or uh, Nancy Pelosi, uh, they would get a very different idea of things than if they took a walk in Nashville and then took a walk in Syracuse and took a walk in Miami and talked to ordinary people. Um, so I think it's very important for Americans who are interested in the region to make sure that they, they more or less ignore what most of the American media tell them and try to interact with uh, mechanisms that are available online and in other ways that reflect the sentiments of ordinary people and public opinion across the Arab world. And what they would find is that you have exactly the same human dynamics at work. In fact, you have them at work all over the world. We, we know that, we, we who deal with the global affairs. Uh, it's when ordinary people are not given a chance to express themselves and live a decent life that they become uh, angry, humiliated, and then sometimes they become extremists, and sometimes they do terrible things. Uh, so that's my main um, comment, is for just to, to hear what ordinary Arabs and others, Iranians, Israelis, Turks, what other ordinary people are saying and thinking, uh, and, and then make decisions if you're interested in foreign policy, whether you're voting or you give money to a cause or you join a group, uh, make decisions based on that knowledge not based on what you see uh, in the mainstream media, especially the, um, the, the, the cable news, uh, which only tells you when there's a bomb or a killing or something. Uh, but otherwise, um, thank you for having me. And it was great to be with my colleagues. And, uh, and, uh, and go Titans. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, Dr. Piller. This time I will unmute. Um, I, I think this diplomacy versus military force, it really goes back to some of Rami's you know, earliest comments in this session. Um, it, and I, sh I should note, as long as you're, you're giving all the plugs to USIP and Mona, uh, you know, I've got an association with the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, uh, which you mentioned in, in the introductions, Patrick. And, and its one main theme is, is, is trying to get the United States worldwide, although we've got a particular emphasis on the Middle East, to think more in terms, less in terms of the military as the sole you know, source of US power and influence, and more in terms of the, the other tools. 
And for most of these problems we're talking about, that means a very active, inclusive, comprehensive diplomacy that has too often been uh, lacking. Well, thank you uh, so much. And we didn't mean to under, underplay the Quincy Institute, where you are a fellow, or the yeah. Georgetown University Center for okay. Security Studies, where you're a senior fellow. And, and uh, um, we, we thank you, Dr. Piller, for, for being with us, and uh, Rami Khoury for uh, being with us from Cambridge, Mass., where he's uh, in residence. He's a, a distinguished journalist. Uh, uh, based in uh, Beirut normally, and Mona Yakubian with the USIP. And I strongly recommend that uh, after you sign off tonight, if you're watching, uh, Google each of these names, get on whatever mailing list that their byline will appear, and you will be much, a much better and well-informed citizen for having followed uh, their writing. They're uh, tremendous uh, authorities on any topic that they undertake. And we are immensely grateful for them taking time tonight and speaking with us to help us inform uh, our community on uh, a very important region of the world as we uh, prepare for election 2020. So thank you all for being with us and uh, everyone have a good evening and please be safe. Thank you.